My name is Susie Spear. I'm an alcoholic. It's a pretty big crowd. This is a great group. Thank you so much for having me. I have a couple of my bodyguards with me, so don't try anything crazy after the meeting. Um, my sobriety date is October 23rd, 2012. And, um, you know, I was introduced to Alcoholics Anonymous very early on after getting sober. And I've done a lot. I want to make sure to let you know that I've done a lot. Um, I've been to treatment centers. I've done inpatient, outpatient, some other state required things. Um, the reason I'm sober today is because of Alcoholics Anonymous. And because when I got here, there were women here that explained to me what this program was about. They asked me if I was willing to help others, if I was willing to believe in a power greater than myself. I said yes, whether or not I was really willing to do those things at the time. And that's why I'm still sober today. So if you've tried a lot of other things and you haven't been able to get and stay sober, you may be in the right place if you're willing to take some actions. Um, I'm going to tell you what I was like, <clears throat> what happened and what I'm like now. I do have a home group. I sponsor other women. I've done a lot of service in Alcoholics Anonymous. Uh, I have stopped saying the service that I haven't enjoyed doing because it's gotten worse in some aspects. So I'm going to stop saying that. Um, I've done a lot of service. The most important service I think that I have been able to do in Alcoholics Anonymous is to sit with another woman, read the book, see the light come on. Whether or not that woman stays sober is not up to me, but I do believe that that is the most important thing um, that I've done in Alcoholics Anonymous. But I'll tell you about some other things that I've done and that I've not liked too much, uh, if you want to hear it. Um, I am one of three children. I'll also tell you that before I made a lot of my amends, like to family members, I would tell you about everyone else's alleged alcoholism or drug abuse in my family. So if you're interested in that, just look from a talk from like 2014, you can hear my whole family lineage and what I think they should have been doing. Um, but I'm not here to tell you that today. I, um, I'm one of three children. There was drug abuse, alcohol, abuse of every kind in my family growing up. And when I arrived to Alcoholics Anonymous, I would have told you, you know, if you had the life that I had, if you had the struggles, if you grew up poor, white trash in a trailer in East Tennessee, um, you would probably be, you know, how I am. And, um, you know, I, I truly believed that for better or worse. You know, that's, uh, I just really thought that that was my lot in life. What I can tell you today is uh, none of those things are why I'm an alcoholic. And, you know, I have siblings that are not alcoholics, so they say, who grew up in the same circumstances as I did. And I do know people that have grown up um, in those circumstances that are not alcoholics. So they have other problems. We all have problems. But, um, you know, I really believed that when I got here. And it was vitally important for me that I had women around me, a sponsor, a strong home group, to tell me that I was an alcoholic um, because I like the effect produced by alcohol, no matter what that was, good, bad, and different. However, I did grow up uh, poor white trash in a trailer in East Tennessee. And, um, you know, I'm from Alabama originally and um, moved to East Tennessee away from all of my extended family and moved around a lot and blah, blah, blah. All that childhood stuff felt different, felt like I didn't fit in. Okay, whatever. 
I took, uh, I had really good examples of what it looked like to have a relationship with God growing up. Both of my sets of grandparents were very religious. They were opposing face. One was an actual cult. The other one was what some may deem a cult, uh, Christian religion. But I saw what it looked like to have a strong relationship with God and both of these family dynamics. And I wanted that. You know, I really respected my grandparents. They always loved and genuinely cared about me and my siblings. And, you know, they would show up and give us groceries or money for school lunch or whatever the case may be. So <clears throat> I saw what that looked like. I wanted that. So I started attending church when I was young, uh, elementary school, middle school age. And I believed that if I did what the people of this church were asking me to do, that my life would get better. My home life would get better. So I went to church, you know, I prayed the way I thought I was supposed to. I was at the church anytime the doors were open. That was because I did not want to be at home. Um, but, you know, when my circumstances at home didn't change, I remember the moment I turned my back on God. I continued to go to church because I wanted to be out of the house. But I remember just thinking, you know, I see like God working in all these other people's lives. I just don't ever think it, maybe my family is just like really too screwed up um, for anything to happen here. So I continued to, to go to church and do those things, but I just didn't really believe that my life was going to change. Um, so I had a lot of fear of alcohol and of drugs and other substances and outside issues, as people call them. I had a lot of fear. And um, I started drinking alcoholically at 20 years old. I went to college for a couple semesters. That wasn't for me. Moved back to my hometown where I grew up in East Tennessee by this time we had moved. And, you know, I, I was dating this man. I was in uh, trade school. I was dating this guy who's few years older than me. And I remember, you know, this moment where he just kind of looked at me and he was like, well, Susie, what are you going to do when you turn 21? And like, you don't know how to drink in the bar. And I was like, well, that's a great question. Um, and I started drinking alcoholically that day. So what I want to tell you is it is, it's not that man's fault that I'm an alcoholic. He did teach me some things about drinking um, but it's not his fault I'm an alcoholic. You know, uh, I don't think it's the fault that I waited till I was 20 or any of these things. But that day, I started drinking moonshine alcoholically. That was straight off the mountain in East Tennessee. And I learned quickly that if you keep it down the first time, that is ideal. Um, if you don't, just try, try again. Eventually, you will keep it down. And I just didn't have to drink that much to get blackout drunk, which was always the goal for me. You know, I did not drink and want to just like have a casual, good, classy time. That is not how I ever drank. I didn't, ne I never took a drink unless I was going to get blackout drunk. So um, I started drinking alcoholically that day and it was great. I loved it. Uh, my goal was to always get out of my head and get out of my heart, not think about the things that I had done, that I hadn't done, that I was unwilling to do, the family that I didn't want to participate in, 
you know, I just, I had so many things that I did not have the tools to deal with. Um, and quite frankly, if I'd had them, I wouldn't have dealt with them at that time anyway. So I started drinking alcoholically that day. The way my drinking looked was, um, you know, I got a job, my first job in like my profession that was going great. My manager at the time wouldn't give me the schedule that I wanted, which I just wanted to work like a 12 or 13 or 14 hour a day. And then I have a full day off work so I could drink all day. I mean, I didn't tell her that, but I wanted a full day off so I could drink all day. And then I wanted to work the next day. So just like every other day, I wanted to work like 12 or 13 or 14 hours. I thought that was probably pretty reasonable and that I was a really good employee and she should be so happy and lucky to have me work those hours. And um, that's not the schedule she wanted me on. So the kind of person that I was, I just figured out um, how to take her job so I could make my own schedule. I had no intention of like being a super great employee. I was not like, what can I bring to the table and make this company better? I just wanted to make my own work schedule so that I could drink the way I wanted to drink. So that's what I did. And I was a good employee. Did I show up hungover? Absolutely. Um, did I call out? I did not. I would show up to work. I will be there. Um, even if I quit drinking at 2 a.m. and have to be there at 7, I'll be there. Like, no problem. And I just never thought about the fact that I was probably still drunk at work. Um, I drank for about five years before I got sober. So, you know, I was like, I'm doing fine. I'm doing great. This is what people my age are doing. Um, my drinking also looked like, you know, I, I didn't care to go out and be with all of you all while I was drinking. Now, I would do it sometimes just to hang out with friends or so everyone didn't think I was like alone, depressed, drinking alone by myself, but I preferred to do that. Everyone knew that's what I was doing. Um, but I was the kind of girl that like at New Year's every year, me and this boyfriend would go to Gatlinburg, which was nearby and um, had like a little condo and I would be passed out at the bar like an hour in and they would be piling up coats on me. And I thought that was so nice. You know, I'm passed out at the bar and they're just like piling coats on me like, oh, she's just taking a little nap. And I thought that was fine. Um, and I may or may not wake up and drink again, or I may be so belligerent that they kick me out and the Santa Claus um, cab driver would come and get me and walk me up to our condo. So that's what my drinking looked like. I got into fights with every family member, every friend. I just, I didn't care. I couldn't show up. I hated myself. I didn't know why I hated you. I thought I knew why, um, you know, I just, I, I wouldn't say that I was like depressed or suicidal, but if I didn't wake up tomorrow, that'd be fine too. You know, I just like, I, I don't know. And I don't care. And what I do last night, blackout Susie deleted all her calls and texts. So I don't even know. You know, like that's what my drinking looked like is I didn't even want to know what all I had said or done the night before. Because also what I like to do while I was drinking is sit in my garage alone by myself, um, chain smoking cigarettes and drinking with the garage door about this far open because I was convinced that my neighbors, you know, thought something was wrong with me. So I didn't want them looking in there. And I would 
call my family members, whoever it may be, my dad, my mom, aunts, uncles, sisters, brothers, friends, whomever. I would just like dump all my garbage. Poor pitiful me. My life is so bad. And then hang up and then either turn my phone off or call someone else and ignore your calls the rest of the night. And that's just who I was. I did not care about you, what you may be going through. I was going to tell you, I'm going to show up to your birthday party, to your anniversary, to whatever, to your kid's softball game. And I had no intention of ever doing that. I just, it was all lip service. Whatever you're asking me, I'm going to say what I think you want to hear. And I'm going to do whatever I want anyway. So at some point, I know this is going to be hard to believe, but that boyfriend and I just was like very not good. And things like, you know, we'd get drunk on a boat and he'd like throw me off the boat. Um, I deserved it. Or, you know, he would like not show up at home for a couple of nights and I'd change the locks, you know, just fun things like that, just normal. And I finally decided at some point, you know, this guy is really terrible. And my sister had moved to North Carolina by this time. And so I called her up and I had told my sister dozens of times everywhere that she had lived, hey, I want to come live with you. Life sucks, blah, blah, blah. And for whatever reason, this particular time, I was going to visit North Carolina about five weeks from the day that I was calling her. And I said, hey, I think I'm just going to move to North Carolina. Like, this sucks. My boyfriend sucks. You know, everything's terrible. And she was like, okay, why don't you move? And she would always say that. My family is pretty much, until I got sober, they've always been supportive of everything that I've done. and. She was like, great. Uh, for some reason, though, she also did a follow-up call and booked a U-Haul for me to actually move. And I did, you know, so five weeks of the day. I told that boyfriend, I don't know, like a week before I left or something. By the way, I'm moving. Like, see you later, loser. Um, and I moved because that is the kind of person, you know, that I was at that time. And I moved to North Carolina. Packed everything up in a U-Haul. A couple of my friends helped me move. Um, you know, and I didn't talk to those couple of friends for years because that is who I was. So moved to North Carolina. Surprising to me, my drinking got worse. I didn't know drinking was the problem, but somehow I'm, you know, I I had a job here before I moved here. And I did the same thing that I always do. I couldn't get the schedule I wanted work up the chain, take someone's job, probably be not not too nice about it when all that was going on. Um, so I wasn't like the most liked person <laughs> at work and, um, you know, made my work schedule the way I wanted it. So at this point, I'm in North Carolina with my sister who I've wanted to live near for years. Um, I moved out of my parents' house when I was in high school and that was a whole thing. But so I hadn't been around like my family of origin, if you will, in a while. So I was really excited about that. I'm drinking more. Now I'm really alone. I mean, I was alone before, but I at least had people like calling me saying, hey, do you want to come out? And I'd be like, oh, I'm so busy, you know, but now it's just me crying on the phone, making phone calls, crying my ex-boyfriend you know, calling him crying, 
it just the whole thing. <clears throat> so my drinking got worse. What I decided was a good idea is I got my dad to move to North Carolina from Alabama. And then I didn't go see him for several weeks or a month. And I somehow I thought that was going to be better. When I did finally go see him, I mean, he came to see me, you know, I couldn't drive to see him. When I did finally go see him, you know, my daily operating way of being, if I was off work was like, I was waking up and I was going to start drinking. You know, when I would have the shakes, I thought it was because I hadn't had caffeine yet. <laughs> I don't, I was just like, oh, I need to have some caffeine and also some liquor. I don't know. Um, and so I can tell you that the day that I went to go see my dad, when I finally had felt so terrible about myself that I was going to do something for my dad. That's what I did. When I felt really terrible, I was like, who can I help? That will tell a lot of people that I helped them. My dad, pretty good. He's going to tell the whole family how great I am. So I was like, okay, I'll go help him with a computer question. Um, yikes. Which if you know me, I'm not the one to ask <laughs> for computer help, but I probably know more than my dad. So I'm like, I'll go help him and I'll be the hero. So I know I had been drinking that morning because that's what I did. It was like my day off of work. I know I've been drinking. I don't know how much. Like I said, especially at this point, am I drinking? I had plenty at home. Um, I had plenty of cigarettes to chain smoke. I had anything that I needed. And I would just drink until I blacked out. And then I'd wake up again, pretend to do some laundry and drink again and black out and repeat. That was my favorite. So I know I'd been drinking. I went to my dad's house, helped him with his question. I know I drank there because that is what I did. I can't tell you how much. But when I left there, I almost got home. And then I hit two people who were walking in their neighborhood when I was driving. And what I can tell you about that is, you know, I had gotten to the point in my drinking where I could not drink enough to quiet what was going on in my head and what was going on in my heart. I just couldn't do it. Drinking had stopped working for me. I didn't do drugs. Um, I'm sure I would have gotten there, but I just couldn't drink enough to get where I needed to be anymore. And I've been drinking for almost five years. Um, I was not blacked out to not know what was happening. I called the police. Um, you know, I'd reached the point in my drinking where I hated who I was. I didn't know how to change. I didn't know how to be someone else. Um, and quite frankly, I don't know that I would have wanted to. So I'd never been in trouble. And uh, I went to jail. I thought that I just deserved to be there. Um, I think they felt sorry for me. And so they didn't put me in the jail until after I went to see the magistrate judge. And when I went to go see him, it was sometime after midnight. And he just looked at me and he said, you know, the man that you hit is probably going to die and the woman is critically injured. I hope you had a good time because I'm going to make sure you go away for a long time. And he just ushered me away. He did not want to look at me. And I will never forget that because I didn't want to look at myself in the mirror at that point in my drinking. And I knew that I'd harmed others to a point that there was no coming back. Um, there was a difference in harming myself and harming other people. So, you know, I just, 
I wanted to be under the jail. I never wanted to leave. Um, the next day, <clears throat> my sister came and bailed me out of jail and I didn't know what to do. And I called an attorney. He said, I can't help you. You need to call and get an alcohol assessment. You know, have you done that? Have you ever been to treatment? And I hadn't. Um, I went and had this alcohol assessment done. And I didn't know anything about treatment. They kept saying treatment. I knew rehab from like Lindsay Lohan, Paris Hilton, you know, that era. Um, but they kept calling it treatment, which I just think sounded like more delicate than rehab. So this little old man, you know, I thought he was going to go easy on me. And I was completely honest for the first time about my drinking, how much I was drinking. I mean, I took up the page. I flipped to the back. I'm just like really letting him know. And so he flipped to that page and he just like looked at me over his glasses and he was like, you're going to treatment. And I, I didn't know what that meant, but I said, OK, you know, I was like, whatever I need to do. Um, that employer that I had, I was completely honest with that employer about what had happened. And, uh, I mean, what were they going to say? They were like, oh, okay, take care of it. And I, I went to treatment. So I went to a 30 day treatment center in Surrey County, North Carolina, which is like very small and rural. There's nothing there. Um, we had some cows and a dog and a cat stuff like that. And, um, you know, this was the first time that I was learning about alcoholism. You know, I mean, I was, what I really learned is that I should have been doing cocaine so that I could stay up longer and drink more. I learned that, did not know that. Um, I learned about the effects of different drugs and alcohol on the body, what it does to your brain, what it can do to your liver, just all these different things. Uh, there were chalk talks, Father Martin, I mean, you name it. And we had it in this treatment center. Uh, but none of that is why I'm still sober. They took us to meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous in this old train depot. And, you know, it had couches in it that smelled like they had been next to a dumpster for two weeks in the rain. It was all what I deemed old men. Um I was just like walking in there. They said, don't speak to anyone. Do not pick up a chip. You're just here to listen, you know, sit over here. And when they, I don't know what they talked about in that meeting. Okay. I have no idea. It could have been centered completely around the newcomer home group. Step one, how to get a sponsor. I have no clue. What I do know is whatever they talked about, I knew um, that God was involved. That didn't scare me. I was like, okay, great. Of course, no problem. I'll do it. I'll go back to my childhood faith if I have to. And I did, um, for a number of years and that worked for me. Fine check. And then when they went to give out chips, like I got a white chip, I was like, I know this is what I need to do. Like these people are doing something and they have, I have what they have. I don't really know how that works at this point, but I think I'm going to be okay if I do this. And I knew at that point that I was going to go to prison. I didn't know for how long. And I mean, from what I knew, I thought I was going to have to join a gang or get a girlfriend, but having AA was probably going to be pretty important too. Like 
then I wouldn't have to drink or do drugs while I was incarcerated. So that would be checked. That would be great. Um, and so I got a white chip. So, you know, I mean, I've just always not really liked authority and I got in trouble for doing that, but I felt a part of, um, when I went to leave that treatment center on the last day, you know, I'd found out at some point during that time that there were two counselors at this treatment center. One was an Al-Anon and one was an AA member. And all I knew was that my counselor was an AA member. So I was probably going to get to stay sober because the Al-Anon lady like kind of didn't know what she was talking about. She wasn't one of us. And <laughs> my counselor, I'm in her office and, you know, she's like, hey, are you going to go to an AA meeting when you get home tonight? I'm like, yes, 100%. Absolutely. And I knew I was, I had no intention of doing that at all. You know, I've been gone for 30 days. I need to talk to my attorney who I haven't been able to talk to the whole time I'm in treatment. I don't know what's happened to these people. Um, like there are things I need to know. She said, okay, great. And she picked up the phone and she called a woman that she knew in Raleigh and gave her all of my personal information. I knew it was a HIPAA violation. My address, my phone number, how long I had been there, that I was in legal trouble, just all these things. And I'm just like, oh, I can't believe it. And then she just like handed the phone to me. And it was this woman named Ladybug, uh, who's my sponsor today. And at that time, you know, she had already been sober for, I don't know, as long or longer as I'd been alive. And she sounded like she smoked two packs a day and she's just like, I'm going to pick you up at five. And I'm like, mm, well, I don't really know. Like my family probably wants to see me. I don't know what time I'm going to get back. I just, you know, probably maybe some other time this week. And she was like, um, no, I'll be there at five to pick you up. Like, do you want to get sober? I remember she just like hung up the phone she has told me since that that's not how that happened. She's like, oh, hon, sweetie, it'll be okay. I don't remember any of that. I just remember a click. And um, I went to my first AA meeting in Raleigh that night. So she picked me up. And on the way there, she told me her story, which I was, I mean, I had been around some at this point, 30 days worth. But like, I still didn't understand why she was telling me her story and about her drinking and she had kids and she drank with them in the car and she like evil Knievel to cross this, you know, ditch or whatever. And I'm just like, I don't understand why she's telling me all this. Like I'm going to have to go to prison. Mm, I don't really think this old lady understands what I'm going through. And, but you know, what I learned is that I really did relate to her through that. And when we got to that meeting, she introduced me to so many women. I still have a meeting schedule from that first meeting and all the women on it are still sober. I'm not saying that has anything to do with me. <laughs> I don't know, maybe. Uh, but these women were willing to help someone new that came in the door, you know, give me their numbers. Did I, did I not call them? I don't remember, but um, I have relationships with all of those women today, which is incredible. And, you know, once again, I don't remember what was discussed in that meeting, but I know that I was told and asked a million times, you know, like, hey, do you know, do you know what a home group is? Do you know what a sponsor is? 
you know, I remember being asked like, oh, did you like get a DUI or something? And I was like, eh, something like that. Because I had so much guilt and shame about what I had done. You know, I just, I just believed like I heard all of you share, you know, about like getting kicked out of college. And I'm like, oh, that sucks. But that's not, it's not really what I did. Um, or losing marriages or houses or, you know, I still very much in this mental space of like, I'm worse. And if you all really knew what I did, like you were probably going to be like, oh, someone will help you, but maybe not like any of us. Cause it was in this really nice church where I was going to this meeting and everyone was so clean and put together. And, um, you know, that woman ladybug, she encouraged me to tell some women about what was going on, exactly what was going on. And eventually I was like, okay, you know, the clock is ticking. Like I was going to be leaving for prison very soon at this point. And, um, it had only been like another month, but still, you know, I, I just could not get honest. And so I invited these women from my home group to go out to coffee. I'm just like, I need to tell you all something like everyone sit down. Um, you know, it's going to be really bad. And, um, one of the ladies looked at me and she was like, okay, Susie, like, are you going to jail? Are you going to prison? What's going on? Like that happens all the time in AA. It's fine. And I was just like, excuse me. Like, have you ever been to jail or prison? And she hadn't, I just want to say she had not. Um, but those women introduced me to all of the women who took meetings into the facilities where I was going to be housed. So I had like a little bit of a leg up on what it was going to be like. I did not have to join a gang or get a girlfriend. Um, I did not date my first year of sobriety. I followed that rule. Thank you. Um, but, you know, I, I, I was able to have like this peace of mind. Of like, you know what, I can stay sober and there will be other people in there that will be trying to do what I'm doing. So I did go to prison and, um, you know, on my sentencing day, my attorney, my attorney had come to me at some point um, before this and said, hey, you know, this couple wants to speak to you at your sentencing. So just kind of think it over and let me know. And so I remember talking to my sponsor. And I'm just like, I can't do that. Mm -mm. I can't face them. There's no way like it's going to be, you know, on my way to the prison. Like, I just, I can't do that. And she looked at me and she said, well, it's a good thing. It's not about you. And, um, that sums up sponsorship for me, uh, <laughs> because she was right, you know? And so I was able to have a conversation with that couple they do not have existing injuries today due to that accident, but they they had a lot of physical therapy and things that they had to go through. Um, so I was able to have a conversation with them where they told me a lot of very hard truths about what their family had been through, what their kids and their grandkids had been through um, because of the accident, what they would continue to go through. But at the, the end of that conversation, they said, you know, uh, we don't know much about AA, but we can see that you have a relationship with God and we we hope that you continue that. You know, we hope you're able to get through this. And, you know, in, in that moment, and even sometimes still today, I can't really fathom um, that kind of forgiveness. Uh, 
but it did introduce me to kind of like what the amends process may look like that I would need to have forgiveness um, for myself, for others um, in a way that like maybe others couldn't understand or, you know, that I could extend that grace um, to others or situations that I've been through in my life and be able to move forward. So I went to prison. What I can tell you about that is uh, you don't have to go to prison to get or stay sober. Uh, that's my experience. And there are a lot of people that I try to help who, I don't know, seem like they don't have enough consequences. That's just my opinion. I don't know. They probably do. They just aren't ready or they're too arrogant. I don't know. Um, but you don't have to go to prison. That is my experience. And what I was, what I learned, what I was taught is that all I needed was this book. And that is all I had a lot of the time. Um, you know, I was in a maximum security facility, closed facility. So every week an AA member would be there, whether or not they got into the facility to have the meeting, totally different scenario. Um, they would be there. So we may or may not have a meeting. But what I was taught is that so long as I had this book, uh, if I was on the second step, I could be taking someone through the first step. If I was on the fourth step, I could be taking someone through the steps to that point. We could read the book together. Um, you know, if I had enough open-mindedness, willingness, honesty, if I was praying to a higher power, if I had a higher power and I was praying to that higher power before working with another woman, I wasn't going to screw it up. You know, I don't have that kind of power. Well, I try to get everyone sober, okay? Like not everyone in a prison is an alcoholic. That may be news to some people. It was to me. And I would walk around with my little blue book and I'd be like, you, 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 let's work the steps. You must be an alcoholic. Have you ever drank? You're probably an alcoholic. You're in this lovely facility. Um, there are so many things that I've done in my sobriety, you know, where I was just like, I mean, I was really taking it there. I was telling you, you know, oh, your fourth step, not long enough. Oh, that's too long. Let's rip it up. Let's start over. I mean, I was in the cult of AA for a while. Okay. But I earnestly and honestly was seeking a relationship with a higher power. Um, I was using this book. I was doing what it asked me to do and more, but I was at least doing what the book was asking me to do. And, you know, I was staying sober I worked all 12 steps while I was incarcerated. I'd read ahead and, uh, you know, I was writing letters back and forth with my sponsor and I just knew like, meh, okay, you know, I'll do a four step, fifth step, probably won't have to do that. Eight and nine, meh, won't have to do that. This is gonna be easy, no problem. And, you know, my sponsor and the women from my home group who were writing me were just like, um, what do you mean? You know, like you said you were willing to go to any lengths to stay sober. Uh, you have paper, pencils, stamps. You can you can write some people and make amends. You know, if that's the only it says in the book that you can do that. Uh, that was the only option I had in some scenarios. I just didn't want to do it. I did not want to write you a letter and it be stamped from the prison. I had a big problem with that, you know. So I'm telling my sponsor, like, okay. Well, I'll write the letter, I'll send it to you, and then you can address it and send it to who it needs to go to so it's not stamped from the prison. And she's like, Susie, you know, 
you were on the news. Everyone knows where you are. And it's not a secret. Like everyone sent the article back and forth. Like you're not getting one by anyone. Uh, and she was right. And that's what I needed to hear. Like I was still very much trying to finagle, you know, manipulate a little bit so that you saw what I wanted you to see. So I worked all the steps. Uh, my dad was coming into the facility to see me. Members of AA showed up. We all did a little powwow. And um, when I was making amends to him, they'd be like, oh, mm, uh, sorry, Jim, we're going to start over. Just turn your head that way. And then they would tell me what I needed to do. We're not going to apologize, Susie. Okay. And like this introduced my family to Alcoholics Anonymous. My dad doesn't really think that I'm an alcoholic to this day but he appreciates what Alcoholics Anonymous has done in my life. And he understands today why I continue to go. Now, if I told him that I came here to speak, he still will tell everyone, like, my daughter is the queen of AA in North Carolina. Like, she goes everywhere and speaks. It's amazing. You know, I just cannot get... Either my family does not think I'm an alcoholic and they're like, what you're doing is stupid. Or they're like my dad and they're like, it's amazing. And she's like the most sober person ever. Um, but Alcoholics Anonymous, you know, he has seen how it works. And he saw these people show up for me week after week, just like he did. And he's like, they don't have to do that. They're not related to you. Why are they doing that? You know? Um, so that was really beautiful, too. I you know, was able to make some amends through letters. I was able to take other women through the steps. And, you know, one thing that I had, I learned about the traditions, I guess, kind of in a non-conventional way when I was incarcerated, you know, I couldn't really understand why some of the women that came into the facility who were pregnant, I'm like, is there not anyone else available? Like you're going to put your unborn child in danger to come in this maximum security facility where they pat you down and I just can't, but like, isn't there someone else? And you know, these women would just be like, Susie, just keep coming back. You know, like one day you'll understand and you will freely give what has been given to you. You will go to sorted places to give this message. I was positive I would never go back into a prison um, to give this message. Like, no thanks. But okay, whatever y'all say, put your baby in harm's way, fine. Um, you know, that's how arrogant I was. Uh, I learned that people around me saw that I was trying to do something different. I'm not saying that I was just like a model AA member while I was incarcerated, uh, but I was a model inmate AA member to the best of my ability. I wasn't, I was trying to do better. I did get into a fight. You know, we didn't have air conditioning. In this facility, we only had fans, and I did get into a fight about the airflow of the fans, and, you know, that was not great. I did one time unplug the Lone Shark CPAP machine. Yes. That wasn't great. Um, I was able to clean these things up when I got honest with my sponsor about it, though. And, you know, I, I had a job in the kitchen, which no one wanted. People faked injuries and got real injuries to get out of working in the kitchen. And my sponsor said, you know, Susie, why don't you just work in the kitchen? And I said, okay, it'll probably make time go by fast anyway. And it did. Uh, but, you know, I told you that even before I got sober, I was a great employee. And I was a great employee 
serving lunch, you know, breakfast. And I very quickly got promoted, got promoted. I mean, I was making like 15 cents a day, you know, and I got to the very front of the line and it was my job to put the piece of cake or the cookie, whatever sweet treat we had on the tray and put it out the window. Sugar is a drug. Like, I don't know if y'all are aware of that. Um, in prison, you steal sugar, you snort it, you know, you do whatever. And I was told like, hey, by this girl who'd been incarcerated a long time, she was younger than me, but she said, hey, you're going to put double or triple on my tray. I'm just letting you know, like, that's the deal here. And so I remember just telling my sponsor, like, hey, I know these spiritual principles and stuff, but um, I'm not trying to, like, really go down. So I can probably get back on track with those when I get out. But this is like a real situation. And she said, Susie, how about you just do your job? And listen, I can still kind of be, I don't know, argumentative at times. But I remember telling her, like, um, you know. Well, if something happens to me, it's your fault. <laughs> Just remember this conversation. And, uh, you know, I don't know how long went by a week. I don't know, a couple of days, whatever. But this girl finally today arrives and she's like, hey, I'm going to be waiting for you when you get off work today. And instinctively, listen, I have been taught, like, go to God, go to your sponsor I didn't have the privilege, the availability through my own actions to just pick up the phone and call my sponsor anytime I wanted. So I went to the little walk-in freezer. I said a prayer, you know, and I'm just like, oh God, today's a day. And just, today's a day. Um, however, when I got off of work, like all of these women that I did not know that well, who were drinking and doing drugs and doing other things while being incarcerated, they met me to walk me down to my quad. And I was just like, God, why are y'all doing this? Like, what do I owe you? Basically, that's prison culture. And they're like, you don't owe us anything. You know, listen, you're trying to do something different. We see you with your little blue book, you know, praying at your bedside. I mean, I took suggestions. I did the things that you all told me to do begrudgingly, um, but I did them. And so we see you're trying to do something different. You know, like you're not in the the game like we are. So they escorted me down and I did my, my, my job title did change. However, like, I don't know, something was working in the background there. They're like, this chick's got to be out of here. We're not going to get what we want to get out of it. Um, but I didn't get shanked that day, you know, um, which was great. So I just learned along the way. That's that's typically how I learn things in Alcoholics Anonymous, where I don't see something is happening. Someone else has to point it out to me. You know, um, I got out of prison. Amazingly, uh, I worked down my time and I was on probation, parole, post-release, you name it. I was on all of it. I didn't have a driver's license for like four or five years. Um I got to seven meetings a week if I wanted to. It may not be the meeting I wanted to go to. It may not be the person I wanted to take me. I may never ask that person for a ride again, um, but I got to meetings, you know, like it was just a non-issue. I worked the steps when I got out of prison. 
you know, I really thought that I had missed out. So what I've been working on probably the last several years is when I got out of prison, I, I just heard in meetings, people talking about, you know, how they sat with, with a book and read it. Well, their sponsor read it line by line to them and all these service positions. And, um, I did all of those things. My sponsor read the book to me line by line. I read it to sponsees line by line. I was the GSR. I was on our state convention committee. I've had a position at our inner group, been on the great fun. I've done a lot. Okay. Um, I really thought I was doing the most in AA and like I was probably more sober than all of you all for a while. And, uh, you know, I was telling sponsees like, you need to write out your alcohol history and your God history. And if you do those things, listen, I stayed sober. Okay. There's nothing wrong with it. But at this point in my sobriety, I've just like taken it all the way back to being simple. The way I got sober was with the big book. You know, the way I got sober was just doing what the book told me. Um, I didn't necessarily read it line by line to people. Sometimes we read it together. Sometimes I just was talking with someone and got them to a fourth step. Um, I don't think I have the power to get people sober, but I, I do believe that, you know, God has given me um, this relationship and that I'm able to help other women find their higher power. It may not be my higher power, um, but direct them to how I did it and they can do it too. I, I really um, did not share with anyone for quite some time that I had been incarcerated of course, there were a few people that knew because they knew when I went in, but I did not get honest with my entire home group. And when I got out, you know, I went back to that group and I walked in and there was a guy there who had been there before. And he was like, hey, Susie, is that your name? It's good to see you. I haven't seen you in a while. And I was just so worried that people were going to be like, where have you been? You've been adding to your story. You picking up a chip. You know, I just like didn't want to deal with it. And that guy did not do that. Some people did, but like that first guy didn't do that. And so I'm like, I'm in the right place. And I did not get honest with people about the fact that I've been in prison. I still had a lot of guilt and shame about the fact that I had been in prison. And I wanted to shut the door on that, never speak of it again. And I think probably my home group now wishes I had never spoke of it again, because that's all they hear me talk about. But, um, you know, at some point I was complaining to my sponsor, like, hey, I'm not hearing anyone tell my story. Where are all the people that have been incarcerated? I'm different. This isn't fair. You know, whatever. And she said, well, do you think that maybe that has something to do with the fact that you're not being honest? Like, there's a whole corrections committee, Susie. I don't know if you're aware. And I was not aware. So, <laughs> you know, I um, started kind of reaching out, seeing where I could be of service. Um, I still was really hesitant. So I just kind of dipped my toe in a little bit. You know, I had a sponsor at that time that took a meeting into the women's facility She's like, you should just fill out the paperwork and see. And I'm like, well, that's the facility where I was housed. So they're not going to let me back in. And I said that like I had talked to someone and they told me that and I had made it up. 
And she was like, okay, well, you can just still fill out the paperwork. So I did. And then I never checked in on it. And um, then the next time rolled around, she's like, oh, well, you should fill out the paperwork to see. I'm like, okay. And then I never followed up on it. And by like the third time, I think some people were starting to understand that I just wasn't following through. And this woman was like, oh, well, I'll call them. And she did. And she called and she would give me text updates like 1103, I'm on hold. 1105, I've been transferred. <laughs> and by the end of that week, I had a blue card to be able to go into that facility. And I was like, this is not at all what I want. <laughs> no, thank you. Now I'm on the hook. And so I started going back into that facility. I did not have a driver's license. Um, I think I had just like crazily uh, tried to open my own business because I'm a felon forever. I couldn't get the job I wanted. So I'm like, oh, I'll open a business. And I went back into that facility. And like a few weeks in, maybe a month in, I was the only volunteer that showed up. And my sister had dropped me off. I didn't have a driver's license. My sister had dropped me. I had to go in. I couldn't just like hang out at the prison outside, walking around the gate. So I went in and, um, you know, I'm sitting there at the table where I got sober just a few years before. And, you know, we're just like chatting it up and whatever. And someone was just like, hey, are you going to start the meeting? And it's like I had this full circle moment where I'm like, oh, my God, I I'm the volunteer here. I'm supposed to be like chairing this thing. And, you know, it was that moment that I kind of a, a lot of things really came together for me. I knew soon after that, that I needed to make amends with my mother, who I don't know when I the last time I had seen or talked to her, I was probably 18, graduating high school. I would just change my phone number and not worry about it. And that's what I did with my mom. And I'm sure she had tried to reach out to me. I've just changed my phone number as many times as necessary for get you to stop calling me. And, you know, I had talked with my sponsor so many times. How am I going to tell her that I'm an alcoholic? How am I going to tell her I've been to prison? How am I going to tell her about me? Me, me, me. And my sponsor just, you know, would talk me all the way through it. And, you know, I just knew one day it was a Tuesday. I knew that morning, like, I need to call my mom. So I said a prayer. This is what I've been taught to do in AA before I do most things. I say a prayer and then I take an action. So I said a prayer. I'd already talked to my sponsor 5,000 times about it. So I pick up the phone and I call my mom. And, you know, I was just like, hey, you know, it's me. It's Susie. And she was just like, Susie Spear? Like, she could not believe her daughter was calling her. And I made, you know, a time to go and see her and make amends to her in Tennessee, six and a half hours away. And another member of AA drove me to do that. Um, and as he was sitting on the back porch with the pot plants that he didn't want anything to do with, um, you know, I was able to sit inside at the table with my mother, who I hadn't seen or talked to in a very long time. You know, I had blamed her for everything that went wrong in my life. Uh, she was not sober. I didn't expect her to be. But I was able just to sit across the table from her and 
realize that she is one of God's children. And that did not come from me. Um, I'd hated her so much up until that very moment that I know that that didn't come from me. She just looked um, beautiful. And I was able to love her in that moment for exactly who she is. And I mean, I wish I could tell you that that's how our relationship still is today. It's not, you know, um, I went to visit her recently and there was hash and guns and cash and all kinds of stuff all over her house. Uh, I didn't know what I was walking into. Um, but I'm able to help her in the way a daughter would, um, not support her in the way she may want me to, but I'm able to help her and love her for who she is. Um, and walk away, you know, not really get involved in the chaos, which was, I was not capable of doing that for many years. Sober. Um, you know, the same type of thing happened with my driver's license. You know, the state of North Carolina said, your license is permanently revoked forever. You know, uh, screw you. And I kind of took that as like, okay, the first time they said you can come and petition to have your license back, I did that. I did everything they asked me to do. I paid all the money. They're like, mm, not yet. And so the next year it rolls around, I do the whole thing again. They're like, mm, nah. So at that point, I'm just like, no, I'm very comfortable taking taxis and Ubers and getting everywhere I need to go. Like, you know. This is fine. I don't care. I don't need to drive. I don't want to drive. I have more important things to do. I can text now while I'm being driven around. Um, but, you know, my sponsor encouraged me like the next time that they tell you all you have to do is take the action. Like the results are not up to you. Take the action when you can take the action. And this is what needs to be drilled into my head all of the time. Um so the next time it rolled around, I took the action. I'm like filling stuff out. I'm waiting. I'm like, okay, let's just get this over with. Let me pay you all of this thousand dollars and leave. And what ended up happening is they just took me through the whole thing. And they're like, that'll be $25. We'll send it to you in the mail. And I was like, and I walked home. Like I didn't even call anyone to come and get me. I was so stunned. I walked home. I was like, what just happened? Like, am I in the matrix or something? And um, you know, I'm not saying that if you go the third time, you'll get your license back. I don't know. You may never get your license back. Um, I don't think that I showed up to AA and I just started getting all the things that I wanted and desired because that has not been my experience. Um, but I live with a freedom and a peace of mind through a relationship with my higher power that I don't even think about taking a drink no matter what. And I haven't. Um, since the day that I asked for it to be removed in 2012. So if you're new, um, you don't have to go to prison. Remember that part. It's really not necessary. But if you do, um, you can stay sober so long as you have a book and you do what is asked of you in this book and you have a relationship with a higher power, not a doorknob, a power greater than yourself. And um, you're willing to help others because that has been my experience. So thank you for letting me share. Yeah, 